This is Ian Bezik, the host of Bezik on Stocks. Thank you for joining me for the very first episode of the show. As a disclaimer, this is not investment advice. Obviously, uh, I have a profile picture of a cartoon cat, so that should tell you this is for education and entertainment purposes only. Uh, I love your audience participation. I'm going to tonight talk about SPACs and PaySafe in particular, but after that, would love to hear your thoughts on the idea, pitch your own SPAC, ask me questions. Uh, whatever, happy to to go wherever the conversation may lead. Um, if you're new to Colin, there's a button to ask to call at the bottom of the screen. Push that and you'll get in the queue. And then when I'm ready to open up the line, I will take the callers in the order that they've requested the microphone. And so with that, uh, with that out of the way, let me get started here. Um, Paysafe is obviously an online payments company that came public uh, it, the SPAC that acquired it announced the deal last December. Uh, obviously, as a SPAC, it started off at about $10 a share and quickly traded up to 18 at the height of the SPAC mania this spring, like February, March. Uh, it was still trading around 12 when the deal closed, uh, but then it fell to 10 over the summer, fell to about 8 um, up until last week. And then, obviously, last week it plunged from 8 to 450, dropping 43% a single day. Um, and I'd say that up until about eight, all of that made sense, but now the stock is unreasonably cheap here. Uh, and we'll get to what PaySafe does in a minute, but I want to discuss why I think there's an opportunity here, because obviously there's many stocks out there in the world that we could be looking at. And uh, it's you can hear a lot of different shows that will pitch any individual stock, and I think that's interesting. But you should always ask, why is this stock worth what's the second level thinking that why am I going to make money on this compared to something else? Cause there's a ton of good stock pitches on Fintwit. And so I think the interesting idea here, this goes as much to SPACs in general as to PaySafe in particular is that we've just had this deluge of SPACs over the past year, over the past 18 months, hundreds of SPACs. There's no way that any one human can keep track of all the SPACs that we've had and in the beginning, there was a lot of interesting deals. Some of them were very successful. People made a lot of money. Um, but now, obviously, we're starting to see the problems. A lot of SPACs came public with very immature business models, tons of them with no revenues, many with uh, shady characters like uh, Trevor and Nicola, who told you that he had this great truck that was going to be amazing with hydrogen. And then obviously, he's just rolling it down a hill. The thing didn't work at all. And that's hardly the only outright fraud you've had. And then you've had a bunch of of uh, dubious situations, something like a quantum scape where they tell you that they've got batteries that are going to change the world, but nobody has really seen if the batteries work. And the CEO is highly defensive about uh, if the batteries work or not. And that stock went from 100 to, I think, 30, 35 now, something like that. Um, so anyway, people have become very skeptical of SPACs. The vast majority of the newer ones are trading under $10. And so I think people have just written these off in general. People said it came public by SPAC. It's probably a bad company. It would have gone public uh, by an IPO if it were a good company. So people have just kind of bailed out on the whole sector. And that's when things get really interesting. The, you have the baby with the bathwater effect where people just said, I'm never going to buy a SPAC again because I lost money in Nikola or I lost money in Lordstown or whatever. And so anytime a SPAC announces bad news now, it's going to go down. And in the case of PaySafe, obviously it dropped 43%. So that's about as close as you're going to get to capitulation on one of these. Uh, so what makes the situation different? This is a large company, $1.4 billion in annual revenues. Uh, it's free cash flow positive. It's generating $430 million in annual EBITDA. So the company has no financial problems. The bonds uh, issued to, uh, 2029 bonds this summer that are trading at 97 cents on the dollar, which obviously indicates that the company is in no financial uh, distress whatsoever. Uh, and yet the stock went down so much that people are starting to, to treat it like it's some garbage penny stock. Uh, and in particular, where things get really interesting is in the options market, uh, where the implied volatility for PaySafe went to ridiculous levels last week. The implied volatility which is like what you see on the VIX, the VIX volatility index gives you the volatility of the whole market. And usually that'll be at like 15 or 20 or maybe 30 during a panic. And for individual stocks, your IV is closer to maybe 20 for a boring stock, 
like a blue chip and maybe 30 or 40 for a more volatile stock. I think Tesla is at around 50 now, uh, which makes sense with all the excitement around Musk selling and everything. But anyway, the, the implied volatility for, for 2023 options on PaySafe got to 110 last week, which uh, when you break it down to a daily volatility, was implying that the stock was going to move more than 6% a day on average uh, between now and 2023, which... I see it's grossly excessive. They were pricing this like it was, like, yeah, like some garbage penny stock or biotech ahead of a FDA decision or something and not a, a pretty boring payments company, in all honesty. Uh, and so particularly what I did, I sold puts. I sold naked or cash secured puts on PaySafe for 2023, January at the $3 strike. And the market was paying me $1.05 per contract which meant that um, I would have a break-even of 195. Uh, If the the puts end up being assigned to me, then I would get the stock at a cost basis of 195. And if nothing happens, if the stock stays above $3, uh, it's trading at 450 now for reference. If the stock stays above $3, then I get to keep the dollar and five cents, which is a 35% yield on the cash that I've put into the position over the next 14 months. And as I'll show in a minute, I think it's highly unlikely that the stock will trade below $3 over that time period. And so I believe this is a, a very attractive way to get an unusually high yield on cash that I've got cash sitting in my account anyway, because the market's expensive. It's been hard to find places to put capital in, in diversified things. And so this looks like a great opportunity. Uh, and why do I say I don't think the stock will go below $3? Uh, PaySafe is interesting, unlike uh, most of the companies that have come public via SPAC. This was already publicly traded between 2014 and 2017 on the London Exchange. Um, And during that whole time period, it traded between 250 and 550 pence. So over a three-year period of being public, the stock uh, basically moved within a 50% range. However, since being a SPAC, it's traded between $4 and $18. Obviously, it's had far more volatility with its U.S. listing because people are allerg- uh, excuse me, allergic to SPACs now. Um, but uh, yeah, so this was already public. And why did it stop being public in London? Uh, that's because Blackstone bought it out for $4 billion at the end of 2017 and closer to $5 billion if you include the debt back into the mix. And as it turns out, right now at 450, PaySafe is trading at an enterprise value of $5 billion. So people are valuing the company at precisely the same that Blackstone thought it was worth in 2017. Between 2017 and today, however, the company's revenues have grown 40% and its EBITDA has improved more than that. And so I would argue clearly the business is worth more than what Blackstone paid for it in 2017. Yet the market is pricing it at the same price today. And for the stock to go under $3, the EV would have to drop to $3 billion, which I believe is is unreasonably obscenely low, because that would be $3 billion enterprise value for $430 billion of $430 million, excuse me, of annual EBITDA, which would be eight times EV to EBITDA. And you look at the rest of the payments industry, like a global payments or a Fiserv, which those have gotten crushed this year as well. But even so, those are trading at 16 times EV to EBITDA now. I, I don't see how how PaySafe would be allowed to trade at eight times. And that's just to hit where the, the put the put that I wrote is struck at $3. To actually lose money for the stock to go to 195 you would see an unbelievable valuation. And honestly, I think Blackstone or somebody would just take it over again if it fell that low. Uh, clearly, with the hot spec market, they were able to cash out. So the deal at $10, which was a EV of like $7 billion. Uh, which gave Blackstone and CBC and the other people that were in on that deal a big profit. So you sell when the SPAC market's hot, and then if the price gets too low, then you can just take it back over. As it is, though, I don't think that would be how things are going to go, because Bill Foley, uh, William Foley, led the SPAC deal uh, to buy this company. If you're not familiar, Foley is one of the most uh, famous and successful financiers around uh, he's grown his own net worth to, I believe, $2 billion. He owns a professional sports team from running Fidelity National, uh, which is the largest title insurer in the country. And then they spun off Fidelity Information Services, which is a kind of a fintech sort of business in real estate and mortgage 
sales data stuff. And then he's done Ceridian. I think he's got a couple more done in Bradstreet. This guy's just been a winner on all his deals. They've gone out five times or more. And a big driver for him is getting margin improvement. All of the companies that he's been involved in have shown substantial margin improvement under his watch. And um, he he went into Paysafe with the same goal that they were going to drive margin improvement at Paysafe. And as mentioned, it was previously owned by private equity. It was kind of a hodgepodge of businesses that don't really go together. Paysafe's doing everything from payrolls to online gambling transactions to crypto. To, they've got their fingers in a lot of pies, and I'm not sure that private equity really knew how to run the business. And so the thinking was that Foley should be able to come in and optimize it, make it better. Uh, and instead, they came up a little short on earnings uh, last week. Revenues, they were supposed to grow 2% year over year. They shrank by 1%. And then they guided down. Revenues were supposed to go double digits in Q4, and now they're getting to, I believe, 3% growth for Q4, which is not optimal. But uh, fully decided to cut some, they shut down some lines of business voluntarily that he felt were, uh, the management felt was posing too much risk to the company, which obviously when they're playing in, in online gaming and crypto and it's understandable that they would they would cut some customers off that maybe private equity wouldn't have cut off because they don't care about the long-term risks of the business. But anyway, I, I'm not worried about one quarter of bad results from a company in transition, particularly during a pandemic. Uh, I think the market has way over freaked out on those results. And, and as demonstrated, private equity thought this business was worth as much as it's trading for now. And then I just can't get over how expensive the options were. People were pricing it like this thing was going out of business. Like, I mean, imagine you're on the other side of my transaction, buying a $3 put on the company that expires in just one year. Uh, you pay $1.05. Just to break even, you need the stock to go to one ninety five To double your money, you would need PaySafe to trade to $0.90. Cents. Like, even if the company went completely kaput, totally bankrupt, you would barely just make a little over two times your money, which is a terrible, terrible bet. Like, if you want to short something, there's so much junk in the market right now like why would you pick on this company that that is free cash flow positive that generates a lot of ebitda that has a superstar financier uh running the package it makes no sense to go after this thing when there's so much junk that you could short instead uh and so what i think is happening is that nobody's really looking at these back deals because like i said there's hundreds of them now and who has time to look at all of them and so market makers on these options aren't doing a deep dive. They're not looking at each one of these companies. They're thinking, oh, I got blown up on Nikola. I got blown up on Canoe. I got blown up on Lordstown. I got blown up on QuantumScape. Like all of these facts have gone bad. And so instinctively, when you see pay safe miss earnings, you say, I'm going to jack up the price of these options through the roof if you're a market maker because you don't know what's going on. And if you set prices too low, then people will pick you up. And so I think the market makers have just priced options on most specs excessively. Um, PaySafe's far from the only one where I've seen this happen, uh, just because they're, they're defending themselves against risks that they don't know about. And on the other hand, people have been buying puts on specs just instinctively because they keep blowing up, short sellers keep going after them, and it keeps working time after time after time. And so there's tons of demand for puts and so the market makers can charge more than they probably should and um, i mean that's fine if you're shorting something that's really going to zero and um, many of the specs will go to zero but pesos not going to go to zero the bond market shows that i mean their bonds four percent bonds for 2029 four percent of your interest are trading at 97 cents on the dollar so how's this company going to go bust when the credit market says there's that it's money good uh, yeah, so I think the, the options market on these specs very interesting. And that's what makes it more broad than PaySafe. This is hardly just a PaySafe opportunity. You look at many other specs. Uh, maybe they're still trading at $8, $9 now. But if they do anything wrong, like anything at all wrong, you wake up the next day, they're going to be down 40% because that's just how the market is right now. Then you're looking at it at $5, at $4. And if you've already done your due diligence on that spec and you know this thing's worth $5 or it's worth $6 and now it's trading at five and people are buying $2.50 put options. So you can, you can step in there, sell that and earn a, earn a large yield and unnaturally large yield on that 
on that option because people just, I don't think it's even people pricing these. I think it's computers that are pricing these, to be honest, uh, just because there's nobody that, I mean, there's humans that are keeping track of specs in one sector, maybe, or two sectors, but there's nobody keeping track of all of them. And so I think this is a great market for us as humans to be going in and doing our due diligence on. Um, which specs would I be looking at? I would look at some of the larger market cap ones, like Paysafe had the, the good fortune of it's still a $3 billion market cap even after blowing up. And so that means there's a ton of trading volume. Uh, the spreads on the options are just one or two cents. Very easy to take a position. I was able to do a 50 option block and didn't move the bid ask at all. Whereas if you're trading in a, in a smaller spec, uh, you would have more issues trying to get liquidity or there would be wider spreads. Uh, so yeah, I would say in general focus on the, on the specs with bigger, um, with bigger market caps, all else being equal, but there will be opportunity. Uh, let's see, that's, that's the, the crux of my paysafe thesis. Does anyone want to jump in? Questions, comments, concerns? Pitch something of your own? I believe they should. Ah, here we go. Greg. Can you hear me, Greg? Are you there, Greg? Oh, looks like we lost Greg. Feel free to try to call back in if you want. Anyone else? Uh, ah, here we go. Greg. See if you can activate your microphone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now you hear me? There you go. I hear you. Hey. Um. So, um, question on the... um. I already forgot the one we're talking about right now, uh, the th uh, yep. yeah, pay safe. Yep. So, so uh, and then last say one day, the three dollar, uh, two thousand twenty three puts, uh, they don't seem as juicy as, say Thursday. What about say uh, two thousand twenty four, uh, something like five dollar puts. Yeah, yeah, I believe the 2023 is close today, around 80 cents. So they've come down a little bit, uh, but I'd say it's still a pretty good yield. Uh, I haven't looked at the 2024 puts today. Do you, uh, what was the price on this? I don't remember looking, but uh, my question was more hypothetical. Uh, the $5 put is, is, um, is, I guess, what would you call it? It's in the money already because the price is for $440. So That's correct, yeah. Right, so it's a more hypothetical question. Does that uh, it changes us? Let, let, let's say the um, let's let's say somebody's paying two fifty for that. So your my cost yep. would be my my cost would be two fifty if I'm assigned. That's correct. Yes. So it still makes sense, kind of. Yes, I would say that that makes sense. Uh, in one way, it's actually even slightly more interesting in that your downside is just one to one. Like if the company totally went bankrupt, as unlikely as that is. You would only lose two fifty. The person buying it from you could only double their money in the absolute worst case outcome. Uh, yeah, and so your break even would be two fifty, and then if it closes over five, uh, you would have a total profit, so fifty uh, percent. Uh, we have a yeah fifty percent of the five dollar uh, the uh, the cash assignment. Uh, the one thing, yeah, obviously it would be it would be twenty six months instead of fourteen months, so that would reduce the yield uh, per year a little bit. But uh, yeah, I would say that two thousand twenty fours are interesting. If there's, I haven't checked to see if there's enough liquidity in those, but if there's liquidity, I would say that that's interesting as well. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Anything thanks. else? Not for me, no. All right. Anyone else want to jump on, or I'll, I'll go on to another idea related? All right, yeah, so another one that I've been looking at. Uh, this one I don't have a position in yet because it hasn't gone down quite as much. I was fortunate that I'd already been very familiar with Paysafe, and so I could do my due diligence in an hour once it blew up on earnings. Uh, but another one I'm looking at is called Spire Global. Uh, SPIR is the ticker. It's another SPAC uh, that started out at, obviously, at $10. I believe the deal closed this summer. 
It traded up to 19.50 for a few days, and now it's fallen to the fives. Uh, it's a company that is a vertically integrated satellite operator. So it builds satellites and then it hires third parties to launch them into space. And then once in space, it operates the satellites. And it's in a newly emerging industry called Earth Observation, where uh, it will track things on the clients, will hire them. Like, say, a shipping company wants to keep track of where their ships are when they're far enough offshore that they can't uh, be tracked by radar from from the ground, they'll contract Spire to say, hey, watch our ship, make sure that like there's no pirates coming after it or bad weather or whatever, or remote workers, anything where you might need a, a high, high resolution satellite to track the earth. And so Spire builds its satellites, launches them, operates them. Uh, the business is losing money as you'd expect because it costs a lot of money to launch the satellites. And then it takes a while to get payback on them, but the business generates good gross profits. There's, it's clear the business model makes sense and it's practical. And the earth observation industry is growing quickly. So the long-term business model makes sense and the satellites actually work. They have customers you've heard of. So it's not like one of the specs where the whole thing is just a prototype and nothing more. Like the business is fine, it's good. It's losing money, but it makes sense. They have cash. So it's not gonna disappear anytime soon. Uh, but I'd say it looks interesting from an options perspective as opposed to buying the stock outright because the company is, I assume, is going to dilute itself heavily going forward. Uh, they seem to be making acquisitions. They're paying employees with stock. Uh, yeah, it's just a classic company that's trying to build a new industry pretty much out of nothing and will need a lot of capital to do so. So if you're long the stock, you're going to see a lot of dilution. Uh, but but if you're selling options and you're just saying, I'm betting on this company not to crash and burn for an X amount of time. And the last I checked, uh, the like the May options for next year, uh, the stock's at 540 now. Uh, $4, I believe it was, let me check. I believe it was $4 put options. But, but, but. Do, do, do. For May, May 2022. Yeah, so the $4 put options are going at a midpoint of 70 cents right now, which means that if you were to sell them, you would you get, uh, for putting up $400 of cash per contract, if you have them cash back, you would get $70 or an 18% yield on your capital through May, so six months out. So that's, again, around mid-30s interest uh, annualized. And if something went wrong, you would get the stock at 3.30 per share, which, again, it's at 5.40 now, and it was just trading at 18 a couple of months ago. And many of the other space stocks have been up, are still up. Uh, there's other space observation companies that have come out, uh, like I believe Black Sky is publicly traded now, and it's held up better. Um, yeah, but you had a couple of the big holders inspire exit. I think there were hedge funds playing the SPAC game where you own the SPAC through the deal, you get the warrants from the SPAC, and then you dump the stock as soon as you're allowed to. Like the day that Spire's registration offering went uh, went through, the stock went from 12 to 7, and it wasn't on news, it was just insiders dumping. Uh, which is fine. I mean, that's most of these bags are overvalued, so you don't want to buy them at ten dollars. But the idea here is we go through, we go through them after they've already been uh, been thrown in the trash and see which ones have lasting value. And like I said, with this one, you already have the satellites in the air that generate the recurring revenue because they're already working. They're generating revenue. They have contracts. The gross profits are pretty good, so the business model makes sense. It's just the stock was too high, arguably at $10, and now that sentiment has reversed, and now people are just saying, I don't want to own the stock anymore. It's the end of the year. People have to sell stuff to reduce their tax liability, and so you've got a portfolio where just about everything is up this year, and then you've got this SPAC that's been going down every day, and people just say, oh, I don't want to own this anymore, so people are people are dumping their stuff like Paystay for like Spire because they don't want to look at it anymore. Uh, and so that's how you get sentiment washing out too much. And then you combine that with these options where people are pricing them at like 100 implied volatility, which is, again, that's 
saying that we're expecting a 6 or 7% daily move in the underlying stock. And yet you actually look at these stocks and they're making like 1% or 2% moves every day. And so the actual volatility in the stock just is not anywhere near what it would need to be uh, to justify the sort of prices we're seeing on these options. Uh, I want to emphasize, don't you don't want to take a huge position in any of these. I'm looking to take a basket approach where where I sell a variety of puts on different specs in different industries, different operators. Uh, yes, I mean, anything can go wrong with any one particular company. And, and the usual disclaimers about put selling, any option selling applies. You want to be careful and keep in mind you could be assigned for the stock. So how much stock would you be comfortable owning if something happens? Uh, but that's a... Uh, that's why I'm looking to see like how much, where's where's downside on this business? Like with Paysafe, oh, uh, Blackstone thought this was worth five billion in 2017, and it's 40% bigger than it was then. So, how much less worth could it be today than it was at that point? Yeah, with Spire, I mean, I think they're looking at what 80% revenue growth going forward, and you already have strong gross profitability. The you've got 150 million shares outstanding, so only 750. Market cap on what a hundred million of revenues next year, I think maybe twenty twenty three. Anyway, the the price is not ridiculous here. It may have been ridiculous. It certainly was ridiculous in nineteen dollars a few months ago. But uh, and then the other interesting thing with these is that they tend to have high short interest. It expires at seventeen percent now. I haven't checked this week, but last week I think it was seventeen percent, uh, and so. Uh, I'm not one. Generally, I don't advise buying a stock just because you think there might be a short squeeze. That's a pretty weak reason to own a stock. Uh, that said, if you if you're involved anyway, or like in this case, uh, actually that helps make the options more expensive, more overpriced because you have this high short interest. Uh, maybe people don't want to short the stock directly because they already see there's high short interest. They're having to pay a lot to borrow the stock from their broker, so they say I'm going to buy puts on this thing in case it blows up. Uh, but they haven't done the work on this individual spec to see is this thing going to blow up. They're just hoping it's another Nikola or another one of these fraud specs. Uh, yeah, I think people are not doing very much work in this. I look at uh, the discussions on them on Twitter and stock tweets. Uh, it's all technical traders, momentum traders. There's it seems very few people have actually read the read the SEC filings on any of these companies. It's it's amazing how much capital is going around in the market now where no one is actually, uh, no one knows what the businesses do. Like that guy who was on CNBC with Upstart and CNBC is like, why do you own this stock? And he's like, oh, I don't know. My microphone breaking up. Can't hear you. Like, but that's, that's just where the market is right now. But anyway, the, back to the broader point of this discussion on SPACs. I think if you do your work on these companies, uh, before anything happens, then you can be ready to to jump into action, like like on last Thursday with Paysafe, where suddenly it blew up, and I knew that hey, these prices make no sense whatsoever, and so there was a window of opportunity to take advantage of that. Uh, let's see, we've got some more listeners here now. Anyone uh, comments, questions? Would you like to pitch us back? Anything? Jump on it. All right. Oh, Gary, I saw you for a second, but. Request the mic again, yay. Anyone wanna jump on? No, all right. Um yeah, so that covers that covers Paysafe, that covers Spire. I was looking at with SPACs going forward. I wanna make the show as interesting as I can for everyone. So Please either jump on now or on Twitter. I'm at I uh, I'm at at IRBZuk on Twitter. Uh, say what you'd like me to host an episode on in the future. Um, oh, okay, Greg. Let's see. Are you there, Greg? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I'm wondering if you want to say a few words about. Uh, you mentioned the uh, YBF. Uh, the the oil company? Uh, yeah, you just mentioned a few words, so maybe you want to expand. Okay, sure. Yeah, so this is 
jumping off the specs, but happy to go there for a second. Uh, so Argentina had their elections last night, and they voted for the first time in 40 years for a pro-business Senate. And so, uh, yeah, that should be a very positive development for Argentine assets. I've long been been involved in the airports, uh, which is ticker CAAP, but many people prefer YPF because it's the state oil company. It's probably the most liquid, easily traded uh, stock out of Argentina. So it's a very good way to just, if you want to stake a claim on, I think Argentina is going up by YPF. If I think what Argentina is going down, short it. Um, yeah, it's the stock, I think it was almost up to six a few weeks ago, and now it's back to like four, four twenty-five. Uh, even though oil's been strong and sentiment's been improving in Argentina, its main exports like uh, soybean oil has been soaring. So they should, the government should have more money to work with. And now you'll have a pro-business government in the Senate that can block all legislation from the from the current government. Uh, and then they'll have their presidential elections in 2023. And presumably the government won't be able to, the president won't be able to accomplish much uh, because obviously the opposition now controls the legislature for the first time in forever. And so presumably his approval rating will stay low and then a pro-business government will be president will be elected in 2023 so in very brief that's the bull case for argentine assets mm-hmm. let's see anyone else want to hop on all right well in that case i want to oh all right gary let's see gary Turn on your mic. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, I just wanted to mention with uh, uh, was uh, one of the specs um, Strive reported today. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at their earnings or have an impression of it. Uh, I've not looked at it yet, but. Uh, I'm bringing it up right now. Have you have you read it yet? Uh, I read it. Um, I don't really know what was expected, so it was kind of hard to judge how they've done. And I did not see uh, after hours price quote for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you know. I own this one. Uh, I own the stock. I don't think there's any options on it. So mm-hmm. that's if you want to be involved, you have to own the stock directly. It uh, looks like revenues hit uh, what they were aiming for. Yeah, revenues are up to $9 million for this quarter, which means $36 million annualized. And the SPAC presentation, they had said uh, $33 million, I think, for 2021. So they should be on pace to hit their revenue guidance. Looks like earnings missed, uh, the net income side missed, but uh, I think people will care more about the fact that they hit revenues, because in general, SPACs would, where SPACs have been going wrong is promising investors a huge revenue ramp, and then once they go public, they say, oh, sorry, we can't actually do the revenues, we said. Uh, but in this case, Drive increased revenues 105% year over year, which uh, was ahead of what, I believe they just said 100% was what they've been going for. Um, so I don't know how it will trade tomorrow, but I own some, and the, at first glance, I mean, I'm just looking at it right now, but at first glance, it seems fine. Okay, good. And then I just mentioned too that uh, Spire reports Wednesday. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't have a position in Spire yet, but hopefully, maybe management will say something that gets people a little nervous on the conference call or something. And if that one drops into the force, could be a good opportunity uh, on the options. In particular, on a day when the stock moves a lot, then they will increase the implied volatility for the options. And so and so that's the opportunity you want to be looking for. So we'll see. Thank you for, for mentioning that. That's good. I'll be watching okay. for earnings on it. Oh, great. And just one other thing I'm curious about is you mentioned that there's a lot of bad SPACs out there and a lot of things to short. Are there any that you would look at now as a short? As a short, yeah, five years ago, I would have been shorting so many things right now, but 
I went back through my through my brokerage and tax statements for the past few years in 2019, and I had on net not made any money shorting stocks over like the last four years. All of my gains have come from from being long stocks and being long options, and so I don't know. The market is just so manic, right? Mm-hmm. Like in a world where AMC and GameStop and and Shiba Inu and everything keep going up. It's very hard to short. Sometimes I still buy puts on some things, but I've not made any money shorting things. Uh, and I don't know how much you know about my background, but I worked at a hedge fund where we shorted stuff, and that's how we made our living. So I like short selling, but it's a very painful uh-huh. market for short sellers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can tell you... Specs that I think are frauds or scams, but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll make any money betting against them. Right. I, uh, I kind of wonder. Are there any you're looking at that you're interested in? No, not really. I just I try to have something that I keep uh, in mind in case I see something happen in the market that makes me think that things are going to head south and. I feel like right now we might be set up through the holidays for continuing the rally, but uh, at some point I know things will change and I just like to have a list of things in mind that I might short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to think about it. And As far as seasonality goes, you're right. But it's rare that the market would go down between now and, and New Year's. So I'd say maybe in January if we start if we see a little bit of shakiness in the market in January, that might be the time uh, to start looking for some shorts. And, and that's uh, that's a good idea. I'd be happy to do an episode on that as we get closer to January to go through uh, people's potential short ideas. But yeah, right now I mostly, mostly I just uh, short the yeah, index thought- when I want to hedge my portfolio right now. Yeah, I was wondering about winter just because getting past a, what what seems almost like a too obvious of a Santa Claus rally, and then potentially when the Fed starts raising rates next year too. Yeah, and I think uh, potentially before that, I mean, just the tapering will be, that's a big sea change in terms of sentiment, and I think people might be underestimating the 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 marginal impact that from when you go from stimulating the economy to starting to tap the brakes even lightly. And uh, Obviously, the labor shortages and the supply chain issues we're having will hit some people's earnings. It's hard to say who's exactly, but some people are going to have big Q4 misses because they weren't able to deliver stuff over the holidays. Uh, yeah, and higher oil hits people, too. I think people are underestimating the impact of, of $4 gas. And yeah. yeah, It's definitely, people should be prepared for pretty low returns in 2022. Mm-hmm. But I would be careful about shorting right now just because generally don't short a dull market. And after Thanksgiving, everyone, all the New York hedge fund people go on vacations. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, anything else? Uh, I guess one other question. Sure. You'd mentioned before that you think that some of the prices are being set by computers. I'm just curious. That's right. If there's any other sorts of advantages that you think that a individual retailer, a retail investor, could take advantage of, uh, with specs in particular, in general, Just in in the market in general, you know, what are the advantages that the little guy has? The advantages um, over the big players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say right now there's probably Two, I'd say there's two, no, let me correct that. I'd say there's three general advantages that, that we have as individual investors over the market. One, uh, we don't have to worry about quarterly results. Uh, uh, having been at a hedge fund, it's just amazing. You wouldn't believe it unless you've seen it yourself, how much is driven by we need to make our monthly results look good and we need to make our quarterly results look good. Like if your fund is down 10% for the quarter, people are going to pull all their money out. It's like you're down 15%, your hedge fund is out of business. And so people have to make so many bad decisions. And the fund managers know they're bad decisions because they have to limit their volatility. 
And so like a stock will be down 20% and they'll say, oh, well, we've got to sell it because if it goes down more then I'm out of, out of work and I have to sell my nice condo <laughs> in Midtown. It's like, you would not believe how much of hedge funds, uh, how much of their decision-making is bad from playing the quarterly earnings game and trying to reduce their volatility. So I'd say people that can take a 12 to 24 month view on stocks, like, you don't have to hold for 10 years or whatever. Like It seems to be this idea that there's only money to be made from a long-term view, but anyone that can look past next quarter or the next two quarters and take a view to where's this business going to be in 2023, 2024, has a big edge over hedge funds that literally cannot own something if it's going to report a bad quarter. Like you've seen this in the consumer staple stocks where they're all raising prices for inflation and yet the funds are just puking them out because they say, well, it's going to miss earnings in Q4, so I can't own this. And it's like, well, but after they raise their prices, then the, the price increases are sticky, their margins will be higher next year than this year, they're all going to report record earnings in 2022, and yet they're trading nearly 52-week lows. So that's one. Uh, another one is the passive investing boom, where what, more than half the money going into the market now is passive, so anything in an index is going up too much uh, because all the 401ks and IRA money that's invested in ETFs has to buy it. Anything that's not in an index uh, is not going up as much as it should. So there's there's specific opportunities there in terms of when stocks enter or leave an index that are interesting. But then also, uh, this is a kind of specific example, but in the country where I live, Colombia, there's two large banks that are listed in the U.S. One is 80% owned by one person and the other is widely held. And so the one is like 20% of the Colombian ETF and the other is only 1% of the Colombian ETF because uh, because it has a few shares that are public. And so one of them trades based on how the ETF goes and the other trades idiosyncratically. And so someone who's paying attention can overweight one versus the other based on just which is outperformed lately because it's the ETF passive money driving it, not uh, not actual uh, based on their business results. Uh, and I'm sure you can find other examples of that in specific industries or sectors that you follow as well. Uh, and then the final one would be ESG, the company the uh, so much money now is being driven by these arbitrary non-financial factors. Uh, people are selling stocks because, oh, it's a defense contractor, oh, it's an oil company, oh, it's tobacco. And so... You know, just have these stocks that people can't own, like institutions can't own them. Like now oil demand has come back, but no no pension, no school system is going to buy Exxon stock now. They would just be crucified by their by their stakeholders. And so stocks that are excluded from ESG are systematically too cheap. So that would be what I'd say quickly the three areas that I see where there's real opportunity. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, let's see. Next caller. How do I? All right, here we go. Oh, here we go. Hey, Ian, I really. Uh... Good to. Oh. Hey, Ian. I, oh, there you uh, go. I really like this format. I hope you keep doing this. This is great. And thank you for jumping on. You're, you're one of my favorite readers. Really appreciate you being here. Well, everyone else who's listening, take notes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I was just curious, and I don't want to put you on the spot with something that you haven't necessarily prepped for, uh, but I wanted to see if I could get some more of your thoughts on your short of Yang. Uh, and just get a sense of, you know, especially as there's regional volatility and, and Taiwan is in the news, uh, but also on the sense that, and I assume it's probably cheaper on interactive brokers, but on Fidelity, where I do most of my trading, the short interest rate is 25%. And I was curious whether uh, the short remains as compelling, uh, given a higher cost to borrow. Uh-huh. Yep, that's a good question. Uh, good questions. Uh, for people that aren't familiar we're talking about i recommended shorting the it's a etf a 3x etf called yang y-a-n-g which is the daily china 3x bear etf so people buy yang when they expect china to crash and so obviously yang was going up a lot earlier this year when at the height of uh, all the panic around g's crackdowns 
when the China stocks were plunging, Yang got up to 22. And so I recommended shorting it at that point. The idea behind shorting a 3x ETF is that they have the leverage decay. Like when if something goes down 10% and then up 10%, like the index will be back to flat, but the leverage ETF will have lost a couple of percent because when it goes down, it has to shrink its position to keep uh, to maintain its 3x leverage ratio. And then when it goes back up, it doesn't own as much. Uh, anyway, that's called uh, volatility drag. And so these 3x ETFs chronically underperform and drastically underperform the market. And so I like shorting them tactically when I want to get bullish on an asset. Uh, but, there, but there's problems with the asset, like uh, with China, where... There was a whole bunch of uncertainty around what their government was doing. So I was like, I don't want to buy China outright, but I want to bet against the 3x ETF on it. So anyway, that has fallen from from August. It's fallen from 22 to 15 and a half now. So what is that, like a 30% gain? Uh, but as Aaron mentions, there's a high borrow fee on that ETF because a lot of people are aware that these ETFs are bad products, and so they want to short them. Uh, and what you mentioned, 25% is the same rate as, as what I've been paying at Interactive. So that you're getting a fair price on that. Uh, yeah, so two things I'd say about that. 25% a year is 2% a month. So we've been short since, what, August, September, October, November. So we've been short for three months. So we've paid about 6%, 6 yeah, 6% uh, so far in fees to be short. And it's dropped... 30, uh, around 33%, if my math is right. Uh, let's see. The actual ETF that Yang is based off of, by contrast, has only gone up from 39 to 41 over that stretch. So if we had just bought the FXI, which is what the ETF is based off of, we would have a 5% gain. And then in Yang, the short, we've made like around 30, 35%, and then we've paid 6% in borrow fees. So we've made out significantly better that way. Uh, and then the other thing I would note is that the borrow fee is charged off the price of the stock today. And so in the beginning, we were paying a borrow fee based off a $22 stock price, but now we're paying a borrow fee based off a $15 stock price because the stock has dropped, the ETF has dropped dramatically. So that cuts your borrow fee versus what you might uh, first think. Then to answer your question on China, is it still compelling? Yeah, I'd say that it's a sentiment trade that uh, either China needs to go up or the global stock markets need to go down because at some point fear and about what China's government is doing will will diminish and people will turn to some other boogeyman to worry about. And so uh, if I own just something outright like Alibaba or Tencent or something, I'd be more nervous. But owning a basket of Chinese stocks, I'd say there's still opportunity for sentiment to get better. Uh, FXI, the underlying China ETFs, 52-week range is 37 at the low and 55 at the high, and it's at 41 now. So I'd say uh, there's a lot of room for sentiment to get better in China. Absolutely. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Your time. So from a technical perspective, let's say you know there's a lot of decay in this in this ETF, and I assume it would end up uh, it would end up the shares would end up splitting. How does that work in terms of the short? Uh huh. Yeah, so are you now short more shares? Uh, you'd be short less shares. This happens a lot with, with uh, VXX and Uvixi, the volatility ETFs. Like, say they'll get down to, I think it's around five to ten dollars, and they'll usually do a reverse split. And then maybe they'll say a four. Let's say let's say Yang goes down to ten dollars, and then they say a four to one reverse split. Uh, so before the stocks are ten dollars, so let's say you're short a thousand shares. Now, after the four to one reverse split, the stock will be at forty dollars, and you'll be short two hundred and fifty shares. So it'll be the same dollar amount, uh, and it doesn't create a taxable event uh, in terms of covering either. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't. It shouldn't really impact anything except it might change the buyer rate because anyone with fractional shares would get their position closed out, and so that might change the amount of stock that's available to short. Uh, but aside from that, it shouldn't make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Anything else, or should I go to the next caller? That's great. Thanks All right. a lot. Perfect. All right, Greg, you are up. Greg, are you there? Greg, are you on the line? 
Now I am. All right, welcome. Yeah, I don't know why I keep doing that. Um, going back to the was it the ESG uh, topic you're talking about. So uh-huh. for pensions, yeah, for pension system, it's not just one pension system. A whole slew of them are now are not going to buy certain stocks, like an oil stock. Mm-hmm. On the surface, that's a big reason why for that type of stock, the oil stock in this example, for it to be uh, uh, cheap. But uh, uh, that that issue that those pension funds aren't going to buy them, that issue is, doesn't seem to be going away. So that's more or less forever going to be like that. So it's no longer really cheap because from that point of view, uh, there's nothing to drive up the price. That's correct. That is a very good point. And that gets to something that I should have said previously, which is uh, for this to be a catalyst that works in terms of making a good investment, the company needs to be returning cash to shareholders, so either dividends or or preferably share buybacks, uh, because like I'm not sure if you've seen, but probably you've seen, like, Altrio is the best performing stock. Sorry? Okay. Yeah, so, like, Altrio is the best performing stock of, I think, the past 30 years. Uh, uh, precisely because it was so cheap for so long, it was trading at like eight to ten times earnings because people didn't want to own a tobacco company. There was all the fears about the, the legal liabilities with the states. So their stock was super cheap, and then management just said, we're just going to buy back just tons and tons of stock. And because their stock was trading at an eight times P, they were getting like a 12% earnings yield every time they repurchased their shares. And so that's what drove the outperformance because they could retire five, ten percent of their shares every year, and that just leads to tremendous earnings growth. So now, like today, I'd say you're looking at these oil companies, like the Canadian oil sands, for example, Suncor, Canadian Natural. They're generating twenty percent free cash flow yields, and they're just they're just turning on the share buyback machines. Like Suncor's going to buy back what nine percent of their stock this year, and so even if you don't have a view on oil prices, if you buy back that much of your stock, your earnings are going to go up dramatically and they pay a big dividend on top of that. So I'd say in that case, just the stock being cheap is fine because management says, hey, our stock's cheap. This doesn't make sense. We're not going to invest more in our oil business. We're just going to give all the cash back to you guys. But but yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. If the company is not returning cash to shareholders, then it can stay cheap forever. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. All right, unless anyone else wants to jump on quickly, then I think uh, we'll call it for the first episode. I want to thank everyone for joining us on the first episode. And like I said, feel free to suggest topics for future episodes on, on Twitter here. I'm happy to make this the best show I can for everyone. So unless anyone wants to jump on quickly, I think we'll call it a night. All right, thank you. We'll talk again soon. Have a good one.